0: It is so good to be with you. Good morning to everybody who's joining us via video over in venue and online. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church, and it is great to be back with you in Santa Cruz here today. <laughs> applause line. That's surprising. <laughs> and I know what some of you are thinking: Have you been away? I here's what. I actually have been in the last week. I counted this up on three continents: North America, of course, and also Europe and Asia and really the highlight of the whole trip, the whole reason really for the trip was going over to India for the dedication of the new building that you helped build at Little Flock Children's Home near Chennai, India. I wish you could have been there at the Ribbon cutting, it was really like a, a dream come true for me to be there representing you. This just happened this past Monday, so six days ago. Would you like to get a little visual tour of the building that you helped build? Really, you don't have a choice because it's in the slides already. So, um, but I, it's, it turned out so good. They did such a great job with this beautiful building. It has complete dental offices with dental chairs and so on, just like you'd have here. There's actually two professional dental exam rooms plus space for a dental lab and a medical clinic and vast, multi-purpose, dividable classroom space and also huge verandas where they can also hold classes plus a vocational training center. And again, I just want to emphasize, you... May help make this happen. This was part of our 2020 vision initiative, which is funding both our children's building, which just had its grand opening one month ago down here on this side of the campus, the three story classroom building there, and this India project at Little Flock Orphanage, which just opened Monday. And I want to tell you everybody who was there wanted me to convey to you from them a huge Thank you. And I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, you are making a difference to the glory of God. In fact, let's all give God glory for this together. This is an amazing, amazing dream come true. Praise God. Amazing what he can do with our loaves and fishes, right? Now, on the same trip, I was also in Greece and in Turkey preparing our series with a small group of about 18 people over there from Twin Lakes Church. This is our series this fall in the book of Acts. It's amazing how few people really know anything about the book of Acts in the New Testament when it's full of adventure and, I mean, fascinating stuff, snakes and shipwrecks and assassins and conspiracies and daily inspiration too. And this fall what we're doing is we're taking you via video to the actual spots where the book of Acts took place. So we appreciate your prayer as we take all the material we gathered and filmed and prep this book and the small group devotionals and the daily weekly videos for the series that starts this fall here at Twin Lakes Church. I'm stoked about this. Are you guys excited about this series too? I really am. I think this is going to be really something special. And also, honestly, I'd appreciate your prayer for for me right now because I'm so jet-lagged right now. All bets are off as to what's going to come out of my mouth in the next few minutes. I could completely be hallucinating, so if you need a reason to stay tuned, just be on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to come out of Renee's mouth. You have that to look forward to this morning. As we continue our series, Meals with Jesus, grab your message notes that look like this so you can follow along. In the series, Meals with Jesus, we've been looking at the 10 meals of Christ in the Gospel of Luke And this morning, we're going to look at the most important meal of all, really. I call it the main course. What's this all about? Well, you may have heard the terms the Last Supper or the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist. Well, all those different phrases refer to the same thing. And one billion Christians... All over the globe today, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox or anything else, are going to take communion as part of their church services here on the first weekend of this month. And it all started at this meal with Jesus that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 22. And here's my goal for this weekend. Let me explain it this way. On the flight back from India, Tuesday, in the middle of the night, India time, our plane was carrying believe it or not the live broadcast of the warriors game can you believe that on the airplane it was that that seventh game the seventh must win game seven of the semifinals how many of you watched that game can i see a show of hands how many of you give me a cheer for the golden state warriors come on give me another cheer for the warriors let me hear it you're saying why are we cheering for the warriors in church i'll tell you why because that's how I felt when I, when I realized I could watch the game live. But this is 3 a.m. India time. So you got to picture this. I am in the middle seat of the middle section of cattle class of this giant aircraft. And I am completely surrounded by sleeping people. Not one person is reading a book. Not one person is watching a movie, let alone the Warriors game. And so I'm, I'm watching the game, and it, it is such an exciting game, right? Wasn't that a great game? Just back and forth, so exciting. And I'm having to muffle my screams because I'm going, yeah, yes! And people are looking at me under their blankets, shut up. And so for two and a half hours, I was just going... Mm. I even took a picture of it. There's Steph Curry right at the victory moment of the game just to kind of prove to you that I was watching it, right? So only I, alone of all the other passengers, was getting the the, the drama and the excitement and and the the thrill that was unfolding available for anybody on that plane in that very moment. Everybody else was just kind of cruising through it, unaware. Why do I bring this up? Well, I love the warriors, and I wanted to shoehorn this in somehow. But the second reason is this. I think the same exact thing happens in church when we take communion. Now, follow me here. There's a drama unfolding during communion. There's the greatest story ever told being told during communion. But only a few of us are really tuned into it, so many of us, because we've heard it so many times are just kind of cruising through, almost half asleep. And so my goal here this morning, before we take communion together, is to get us all tuned in to the same channel so that when we take communion, we see the drama. When we take communion together, we see the importance. When we take communion together, we can go, yes, even more excited than I was watching, or than you were watching that Warriors game earlier this week. And here's how I want to get us there. Several times during this message, I'm going to ask you to just imagine. Just imagine what we're describing. Just imagine what these verses begin to unfold as we look at the scene in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, where it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now skipping to verse 19, and he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Amen. Now, in case you were just kind of cruising through these familiar words, I pray that as we look at the drama just under the surface, the Holy Spirit will enlighten those words for you and and, and get you into the adventure That they described. And let me start with this. Five times in this passage, five times in Luke chapter 22, Luke reminds us that this meal is the Passover meal. He mentions that in verses 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. So this is obviously very important to him that we understand this was the Passover meal. This wasn't just any meal, this was the Passover meal. Meal. And so often when Christians today, 2,000 years later, take communion together, we have completely divorced communion from the Seder, from Passover. But if we go back into time and we look at what it really meant to people in that day, the drama truly unfolds. And that begs the question, of course, well, what is Passover? You may not even know what that is. Flip over to page two of your notes. I could spend hours on this, but, but these are just the highlights. And not only have I outlined it on page two, we also have a table set up for you right here on stage, which shows you the Passover meal as Jesus would have experienced it in the first century. This is a little bit different from what Passover looked like today, if you were to have it at a modern Seder. But this is what Passover would have looked like in Jesus' day. So let's walk through it. What was it it like? Well, as they reclined at the table. First, there was a signed seating by honor. The head of the family or the head of the group that was taking Passover together would sit at the head of the table. And then on each side, the guests would be seated in order of honor. And if that was a family, that meant in order of age. The oldest would have the most honor to the youngest or it would be in order of social standing, social importance. The most important guest seated next to him, followed by the less important, less important, less important. You get that? Seated by honor. Now, I just want to want you to put that in the back of your head, because that's going to be hugely important to understanding something strange that happens later on in this story. And then, just like you and I might, they start the meal with a prayer. And the first of four cups... There were four cups at the Passover meal, and the first cup is called the cup of blessing. And so they would ask the Lord to bless the food together, and then came the bitter herbs. They would also always have some sort of bitter herb like parsley or celery. Because this is California, we have cilantro, but they would have some sort of bitter herb together, and the host would dip the bitter herb in vinegar or salt water, which is what we have right here, salt water directly from the Pacific Ocean. That's not true, but it's salt water, and they would dip the bitter herbs in salt water or vinegar and eat that as sort of the appetizer to the meal. Now, why would they do that? This is a reminder that life is bitter at times that life contains bitter moments. And I love that this is part of the annual memorial that the Jewish people would have together at the Seder or the Passover meal because we need to hear this in an era in Christian culture in America and in the world which is characterized by what you could call the prosperity gospel, where some people say, you know what, if you're a Christian, you love God, you have enough faith, life should be unending happiness, unending blessing, nothing but party time all the time. And if you ever have bitter moments or diseases or anything like that, it's because you don't have enough faith. You cannot find that in the Bible. I don't care what people tell you. They are ripping verses out of context. What the Bible tells you is that there is bitterness in life. Even if you are God's chosen people, there is bitterness in life. Because you know what the Passover meal commemorates? It commemorates how God's people, the Israelites, were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years before God delivered them. But their slavery, their bitterness, set the stage for a miracle that we're going to look at later. And it's the same thing with your bitter moments in life. The bitterness is not the main course. You see, from God's perspective, the bitterness is just like the appetizer, Don't stop eating at the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs are part of life, but you keep going through the meal because the main course is yet to come. And then the youngest person, the person seated at the other end of the table, would then ask the question, why is this night different from all other nights? And this still happens to this day when Jewish people take the Seder meal together. Why is this night different from all other nights? And then the answer would come from the leader The person at the head of the table, in this case Jesus, would recap Israel's history from Abraham to Moses. Now, I want you to just imagine Jesus telling this story, knowing he is the fulfillment of the story he is telling. He's explaining how the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but Pharaoh would not let them leave, no matter how many plagues God sent. And so finally God says, I am going to send a plague of death upon Egypt. And Pharaoh finally will have had enough and he will let you go. And he says to his chosen people, the Israelites, he says, and here is how the plague of death will pass over you. He said, prepare one final meal together. He tells them exactly how to prepare the meal. He says, I want you to eat unleavened bread, bread that hasn't risen because of yeast, because that's going to symbolize the fact that this is all happening so fast you don't even have enough time to make kind of good bread. And he said, I want you to slay a spotless lamb. And you're going to roast that lamb. You're going to eat it together. But before you do, you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to spread it on the top and both sides of your doorposts. And when the angel of death sees that, it will pass over your house and you'll be saved. That's how the meal gets the word, the pass over. So by the blood of the lamb, the people were saved. By the blood of the lamb, quite literally, they were spared. Now, I want you to really imagine this. I want everybody to to try this. Hold up your right hand right now. Just go ahead and hold that up. Now, imagine daubing this door with the blood of the land. You start at the top. Go to the top and the right and the left. Try that again. You're dobbing the top and then the right and the left. Try it faster. Top, right, left. This is really fun to watch. Top, right, left. What shape are you making? Top, right, left. You're making the shape of the cross. The crown of thorns on the head of Jesus his pierced hands. Can you imagine the goosebumps that the apostles must have felt when they saw Jesus crucified and then later he was resurrected and, it, and the light bulb goes on? Oh, my goodness. We get it now. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. His blood covers all of us. And it gets even better, because this is like all the, the blessing before the meal, and then comes the opening hymn, and then they would drink the second cup. Remember, there were four ritual, ceremonial cups of wine drunk at the meal, and the second cup was called the cup of emancipation, because this whole part of the evening is about being emancipated from slavery, being set free And then dinner is served, the spotless Passover lamb. And as the lamb is being served to everybody to sort of say, bon appetit, the way they would do that is the head of the table would take the bread and would break it with the guest of honor. The guest of honor would do that to the person next to them until in a matter of a few seconds or maybe a minute, everybody will have broken bread together Now, so far, this is the same exact thing that the disciples would have done every single year of their lives. So far, it's very similar to the same exact ceremony that Jewish people today do when they celebrate the Seder together. But this is the moment in the meal where something historic happens. Because Jesus suddenly says different words. So far, it's been the same as always. But here, Jesus, it says, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of the Passover lamb? No, do this in remembrance of what? Of me. I want you to just imagine what's happening here. Because the Seder ritual, the Seder ceremony was the same words every year. I mean, it was the Gettysburg Address in fourth grade. Right, It was the Pledge of Allegiance. Everybody knew what was supposed to be said. And the Jesus goes, yeah, let me just throw you a curveball here. Let me just throw you a little change up. This is in remembrance of me. He's saying, disciples, prepare yourselves because you are now at a moment in history. You're now at a meal that will become as momentous as that very first meal. Ancient Passover. And they start, going, they start going, what? What did he just say? And there's so many layers to this verse. Let me just point out one that might clarify something for you. The Greek verb for thanks there. Oikaristeo. And by the way, that still is the Greek word for thanks. When I was in Greece just a few days ago, I heard this all the time. Only the modern pronunciation has changed. Now they say, efkaristo say that with me, that's Greek still today for thanks. And that's the word that we get Eucharist from. You might have heard communion referred to particularly by Catholics as the Eucharist. And you're like, why do they call it that? It just means thanks. Because at communion, we're giving thanks for what Jesus did for us. Does that make sense? And then here's the best part. After the meal, the third cup is taken together. Now, do you see this? It's known as the cup of what? The cup of what? Redemption. Because this cup stands specifically for the redemption bought by the blood of the Lamb. And Luke says it's this cup. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. That's specifically pointing to the third cup. That was the cup taken after the supper. That was the cup that was supposed to represent the blood of the lamb. And he says, this cup is the, what? New covenant. What? This is something new, guys. In the lamb's blood, my blood, which is poured out for you. He's saying guys, there's something special that's happening right now. It's not about that 1,400-year-ago lamb's blood. It's about the lamb of God's blood. Remember, the first public words ever spoken about Jesus Christ after he was an adult was John the Baptist saying, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now at the end of his earthly life, he's saying, Disciples, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, notice that Jesus leaves something undone. Jesus actually does not complete the Seder meal because after the third cup, he says, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until what? Until the kingdom of God comes. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now that's weird because there was another cup Ceremonial cup at the Seder meal. There was a fourth cup. But after he drinks the third cup, the cup of redemption, he says, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup until everything's finished, until the kingdom of God comes. And that's appropriate because the fourth cup is the cup of completion. He says, I'm not going to drink it till everything's completed. Now you go, so what? This is huge. Listen, today... You and I, we live between the third and the fourth cup, don't we? We've experienced the cup of redemption. We're saved. But the cup of completion, that happens in the future, at the resurrection, when God restores the heavens and the earth. And so much of our confusion in life comes when we think, well, I'm saved, I've drunk the cup of redemption. And so the cup of completion must be right now, too. Why isn't everything perfect right now? That happens in the future. We live between those cups. The cup of redemption we have right now. We get to enjoy it now. We're redeemed. The cup of completion we will drink together one day. And this is really important to cling to, that there is so much Hope ahead. The Bible talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, the feast when God restores the heavens and the earth. You know what that is? That's the completion of the Seder meal that Jesus started that night with his disciples. And what happens is just more and more disciples have gathered around the table, billions of them. And one day they're all gonna raise their cup and they're gonna say, Cheers, a a toast to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and Jesus will be there. And you know who I think of at that table? I think of Abraham, I think of Moses, Peter, my mom, my dad, your loved ones who've died in the Lord, maybe a brother, a sister, a friend, someone you're still mourning to this day. But you and I and they and Jesus will drink the cup of completion together and that's what Jesus is saying and in this poetic way he's saying guys this is, it's not over yet it's not over yet the best is yet to come what's ahead is not meaningless sorrow not not endless non-existence what's ahead is a feast and it even gets better because watch how this finishes finally at the seder there's always a closing hymn And watch this. This is so amazing. Don't miss this out. We actually know the lyrics of the closing hymn that they sang. Because every year it was the same thing. It was a ritual, a ceremony. And I just put part of the hymn they sung in your notes there. Check out these lyrics from Psalm 116. Just imagine these lyrics are being sung that night at their Passover meal, their Seder meal. And they're marching out. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives. And you know what happened there. And they're singing these lyrics. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Do you see how that foreshadows what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? They're about to see this thing they're singing happen in front of their eyes. I will not die, but live and we'll proclaim what the Lord has done. They're singing this, and then they're going to see it when Jesus lives at the resurrection. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was the stone rejected by the builders of the temple. He wasn't the same size and shape as all the other little bricks. So they rejected him. He wasn't useful to them and their scheme, where everybody had to be the same. But his completely unique shape made him perfect to be the cornerstone of the new faith. And this verse became so important to the disciples. And then look at this verse, keeping in mind what we just discovered. I will lift up the cup of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. Check out these psalms. There's just amazing symbolism all through this Seder meal. And it's this traditional Seder meal. Again, don't miss this, that Jews had together every year as part of their tradition. And the Jewish people still celebrate today as the Seder. Many of you are Jewish, and you recognize this, but many of us are not, so we need to be reminded. It's this Seder that gets condensed into what we celebrate as the communion meal, particularly the unleavened bread that Jesus broke and the third cup, the cup of what? Redemption. Those are the things that get condensed into the Lord's table, the Eucharist communion that Christians partake of together. Add a little depth to that. You know, I was thinking, on my travels, I saw a a, a symbol Everywhere. When I was in Turkey and in Greece, I saw it carved into the most ancient ruins. It was the symbol of the cross. I mean, I saw this in the most ancient churches. I saw this in the oldest buildings that Christians constructed, all the way up to the modern cross that's on the gates into Little Flock Orphanage. It was everywhere. The cross is the brand, the logo if you will, of Christianity. But have you ever stopped to think how weird this is? The cross? Why wouldn't it have been something else? Why not the star of Bethlehem? Why not, you know, the manger? Why not loaves and fishes? Why the cross? Because the cross actually, if you just stop to think about it for a second, was the most brutal method of torture human beings ever devised. The cross was not a symbol of hope. The cross was a symbol of doom. I why, did, why would anybody go, I want to wear that around my neck. I want to put that on all my buildings and signs. How did that happen? It's so counterintuitive. Well, it happened because at the Seder meal, Jesus gives a completely reversed meaning to the cross. And Christians were like, that's right. Throw your worst at us, world. Put us on a cross. And God will turn it around and redeem it. In our lives, just like he did for the universe, for humanity, through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me close with this, kind of land this plane, and then we're going to take community together. Flip back over to page one. Jesus, to his disciples at the Seder meal, is saying three things about the cross that will wake you up to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, if you really understand them. Jot these down. Number one, the cross is the center of world history. Just like the Seder was the center of history for the Jewish people, kind of their defining moment, the cross is really the center of history for all people, the defining moment. It has cosmic significance. It has world-shaking implications. It means that God loves us so much, he sacrificed for us. The crux, literally, of human history. Number two, the cross is the foundation for a new community, a radically different community. The cross doesn't just change us as individuals. Oh, good, I'm saved. I'm forgiven of my sins. The cross brings us into a new kind of community. And let me show you a kind of a funny detail Luke includes. In the midst of Jesus instituting communion, this this history-making, like I said, bigger than, you know, Gettysburg Address, bigger than signing the Declaration of Independence moment in history. Do disciples get it? Are they there at the moment? No. Look what happens. A dispute then arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. (laughs) What? Have you ever gone, what is the deal with the disciples, right? How do they not get this? How does this even come up in a conversation? By the way, I think I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. Why do they even start talking about this? Well, remember, how are people seated around the Passover table? In order of what? Honor. How does this conversation come up? They're working out the seating chart. That's what they're doing here. Uh, excuse me, brother, that's my seat. You know, I'm number six. You're number seven. No, I'm number six. You're no higher than eight. And they're arguing over this together. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, 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 stop right now. He says in the next verse, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors but you are not to be like that. In other words, the Roman world is all concerned about status. The Roman world, the Gentile world, your world, my world, your work world, your social world, it's all about the seating chart, isn't it? It's all about status. It's all about who you are and what you make and what degree you've got and what your house is like and what your car is like and what kind of clothes you're wearing and you're constantly being aware of being subtly judged for all those things so that everybody's sizing you up. Like, where, where does this person fit into the strata of society? And Jesus is very aware of this tension. He says, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. He's saying, in a world all caught up in the seating chart... You go to the bottom of the table, and you love freely, and you serve freely, and you give freely. You know what he's saying? Check this out. How many, it was like 107 degrees over in the valley this week, right? Was any, just a show of hands, was anybody over in the valley this week? Can I see a show of hands? A lot of you were. So it, was, it was hot over there, wasn't it? Imagine what it's like when it's like 107 in one of those valley cities like Modesto or something, some city over there. And you come in from the heat, and you walk into some big store, Target or something, and it's air-conditioned, and it's 40 degrees cooler, and you just kind of go, ah, right? Jesus is saying that's what it should feel like spiritually when somebody walks into church or somebody brushes up against you as a Christian There should be like a spiritual microclimate around you. And people are so burdened by the humidity of trying to get a leg up and trying to get higher status and realizing they're being judged by others and and, and trying to measure up. But then they walk into your circle and they go, ah, ah, here I'm not judged Here it's not about status. Here it's about love unconditionally. He's saying that's the kind of new community I'm here to bring because that's how I love, and they'll know you are my followers when you love. So this is really the the center of, of world history, and it's the foundation for a new community. And then third, it's this. It's the solution to the great mystery. What mystery? The greatest mystery of all, which is how do I connect with God? And it all has to do with this word. We don't hear this word a lot anymore these days. Sin. See, what happens spiritually is I can tell there's something in between me and God, and it's my sin. And the modern solution in many circles is just pretend it isn't there. Pretend there isn't any sin. And the ancient version for most ancient religions was try to find ways of paying for that sin with religious ceremony and sacrifices. And the problem is neither the ancient way nor the modern way really satisfies. So Jesus says, here's the solution. The ultimate Passover lamb will apply to his blood over your life. And the just penalty for your sin, death, will pass over you. And this answers the question sometimes people ask why does there have to be all this blood in Christianity? You know, why all this, the blood of Jesus covers me? Why, why, I mean, if God's God, couldn't he just sort of wave his hands and say, you're forgiven now. Ever wonder that, honestly? Because instinctively, all humans know there's a price that has to be paid when there's a sin. And, and you know this too. It's kind of like this. Let's say you're visiting a friend and you break a lamp. <laughs> Their lamp goes. And it was a good lamp. It was an expensive lamp that they had in the family for a couple of generations. Now your friend can say, I forgive you. And you can believe your friend. But there's still a price to be paid for the broken lamp. Either they pay it or you pay it. But there's a price to be paid. And again, imagine it was a super expensive lamp. If you owe a debt to somebody like that. Even subtly, it changes the relationship. Somehow it introduces an element of stigma. You don't feel as free when you have that hanging over your head. It stifles the relationship. Well, on the cross, God is showing your debt is paid in full by me. It is wiped out. And this is so important because many people, many, many Christians in my experience, hear the phrase, God loves you, God forgives you, but they still feel a sense of obligation to God, like, wow, I so appreciate that, God, I love you too, and now I'm going to work off my debt to you. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be like a slave so that I can pay off my debt. And here God is saying, no, you no longer Have to think of your relationship with me as a debtor. I paid your debt. You don't you can move past that. You don't have to worry about it. It's paid up in full. You are literally covered. Now we can be friends. And if you're still going, I don't know why why is that so important? Let me let me tell you a story. Something happened two days ago. So I'm walking up uh, into Dominican Hospital. I'm in the parking lot visiting somebody. And who comes out of the hospital but Lisa Cotter? Does that name sound familiar to you? Lisa was the woman who was driving under the influence when she hit the van carrying the Wagner family, who you heard from a month ago, killing the Wagner's two teenage daughters. When I saw Lisa I said, "Yeah, I just want to tell you something. I'm so glad that you stayed here in town after you got out of prison because you're showing us how God can redeem a life. She's just plunged into drunk driving awareness classes. She and Lynn go together into high schools and prisons and other places talking about drunk driving together. She and Lynn, the mother of the teenagers that she killed, they have a relationship now. And I said, "Thank you for not leaving when there was such a such a stigma attached to you here in this town." And she said, well, you know, God has done amazing things. Lisa goes to another church here in town. And uh, she says, so what's up with you? And I said, well, I'm looking forward to this weekend. We're having communion. And she just stops. And tears start to fill her eyes. She just closes her eyes, and she just says, man, I love communion. (laughs) She says, I can't imagine living life without communion. Do you understand where she's coming from? Because imagine you have a debt that big. When you have a debt that big as what's hanging over her head, you could never, ever, ever, ever work it off. With all your good intentions, you would just be be drowning in a swamp of shame for the rest of your life. But at communion, God says, listen, I got you covered. You're forgiven. Now, of course, you still make amends. Of course, Lisa has asked Dan and Lynn for their forgiveness, and they've granted it. Of course, She goes on to help other people, but it's not out of a sense of obligation, believing that all those things earn her forgiveness from God. You can't earn forgiveness for a debt that big. You can't earn forgiveness for anything you have ever done. You can't earn forgiveness through feeling more ashamed of yourself. You can't earn forgiveness through your penance and good works. Debts that big can never, ever, ever be worked off. So what God says is, I grant it to you so that you can rise up and move forward and stop marinating in the past. And maybe you've had a hard time letting go of something you've done in your past that you're ashamed of. And maybe this is the morning that God is whispering to you, you know, my body's broken for you. (laughs) You know, my blood was poured out for you. So You can stop, stop living in the past. You're covered. You are covered. Now you can move on from bondage to slavery and move forward into the promised land. There's only one thing you need to do. And this, to me, explains the whole question, why in the world did Jesus choose a meal to symbolize our relationship with him? Well, I think it's as simple as this. A meal has to be personally received. Right? I can't eat your meal for you. I had a delicious filet mignon last night. Don't you feel satisfied? That was good, wasn't it? I didn't have filet mignon, I had spaghetti. But still imagine that. You personally that's all you have to do. God says, I prepared a feast of forgiveness for you, for you. Now just personally receive it. And I want to give you a chance to do that. All of us, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, meals have to be personally received and continually received. You can't say, I ate 30 years ago. (laughs) You keep reminding yourself of the debt that was paid off for you. And let's do that together right now. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so, so, so much for your love for us. And, Lord, in our hearts right now, we just want to confess to you our sin. We say, Lord, I am a sinner. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you paid my debt on the cross. And God, I believe some people in this room are just going to settle the issue right now and say, I receive you now as my Lord, as my Savior, as my liberation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.